going through the book of John. We're in the third chapter this morning. A familiar book, a familiar chapter. So it'll be fun looking at some things here. Before I get started, I do want to say that uh, the elders prayed and uh, we got together with Dan Robbins and in a nutshell, we didn't see, agree on a couple of things, leadership of the church wise. And so he decided he wouldn't be an elder here. I want the body to know that. Keep praying for us because we're going to, we're going to serve the Lord here. We're going to walk with the Lord here. We're going to obey the Lord here. We're going to follow him. We take our marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I now trying to persuade God, men are God. Am I trying to please men or God? Well, we're here, the elders here, and I, hopefully the body of Christ here at Calvary Restore. We, we want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do here. Uh, so please be praying for us. But we're in the third chapter of the book of John. I said last week that verses 23 through 25 is nothing but a bridge We're building a bridge to Nicodemus. So in chapter 2, verse 23, it reads, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, speaking of Jesus Christ, during the feast, many believed in his name. His name speaks of his deity. When they saw the signs which he did, the religious leaders had heard all about these signs. This itinerant rabbi was performing. So they're keeping their ears close to the ground. John the Baptist was drawing great crowds. Jesus Christ begins to draw greater crowds. Remember, they had sent priests and Levites to John to see what was going on. Find out these guys are Pharisees. And John, they asked him, are you the Christ? John told them, no, I'm not. Now, while Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, God is so good in his providence, in his wisdom, in his grace, he gives Nicodemus the opportunity to come face to face with the one who has agitated his heart so much to make him begin to question his religion. Because as Nicodemus will find out, religion, the word, the Latin word relingari, it means to bind. It's a bunch of works trying to work your way to the kingdom of God. Judaism, and that's not going to work. You must be born again. You must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So he gets this opportunity to meet him. Verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus means conqueror of the people, a ruler of the Jews. We sometimes can slide right past the Holy Spirit when he tells us he was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus, Josephus would tell us he sat in Moses' seat. Or you could say Ezra's seat. He was the head man. 
He tells us, Josephus does, that there was 40,000 rabbis teaching the word of God in Israel at this time. 22,000 Levites, some which are priests. There were 6,000 Pharisees. Remember, they had begun their sect in Babylon because they could have no temple there. So they started with good intentions to preserve, to abide in the word of God, to live that out. And in the midst of these 6,000 Pharisees, we have the Sanhedrin, the 70 most elite men in the nation of Israel. They served as the Israel's parliament, we could say the Supreme Court. Nicodemus was regarded by most to be the preeminent voice of religious teachings in Israel. He was the man. You had any questions, if you could make your way to Nicodemus, that's where you would go to get the correct answer. Verse 2 tells us, this man came to Jesus by night. Jewish teachers, they often studied at night, especially if they had a day job. But that word night can bring on connotations of sinister activities that's going on at night. So Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. He says, we know because we've been studying you. We've been talking about you. We've been kicking you around trying to explain what is all these things that's going on about you. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Little did he know that he was standing in front of God who had come to teach. That's what Jesus Christ is doing. He says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I commend Nicodemus on this. He has an inquisitive mind. He's wrestling with some things, spiritual things. He, he just can't get all of his ducks in a row at this time because God has touched his heart, letting him know that religion is not enough for you. Being good is not enough for you to enter my kingdom. He goes to Jesus. He also knows that these signs that Jesus is doing, he's doing them by the power of God. So he's being drawn at this time. That's grace. He may have been lacking Nicodemus in comprehension, but at least he's not blinded by prejudice like all of the other religious leaders were. Because when Jesus was, would do miracles, sometimes, especially when he goes into the synagogue and he heals this man of being blind, lame, and dumb, Dumb, the religious leaders come down and say, you cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Jesus goes on to say, be careful now. You know that's not correct. If I cast out demons by the prince of the demons, Beelzebub, who do your sons cast them out? They can do some of these things. So he says, be careful. You're, you're getting close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The only unforgivable sin, by the way. So at least Nicodemus hasn't gone that far. 
Nicodemus is standing or sitting across from Jesus. Nicodemus has this remarkable mind, a theologian, and he's asking and questioning God. He's gone way above Nicodemus's entertaining angels. He's entertaining God. And Jesus sees through him with this x-ray vision, this supernatural vision. And he cuts right to the chase, Jesus does. Jesus answered and said to him, he doesn't flatter, flatter Nicodemus as Nicodemus seems to be doing. Jesus says, amen, amen. You can take this to the bank of what I'm about to say to you, verily, verily. The new King James says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Now, this is the first time that phrase, that terminology, born again, has been presented in the New Testament. The Greek word, anothen, it can mean anew, it can mean again, or from above. And I'll be using from above a good, a good bit here. Now, Nicodemus, he will construe the word again. That will kind of confuse him. But once again, the normal uses in John's gospel is born from above. So birth from above means birth from God. Birth from above conveys the same essential sense as born again or born from the spirit as opposed to a fleshly birth. What is merely natural, a human birth, and inadequate when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. The gulf between divine and human power is infinite. Remember in the prologue, those verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, John said this. But as many as received him, speaking of Jesus Christ, To them he gave the right, the authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, that's not going to get the job done, but of God. That's how it has to happen if we're going to heaven. He says in verse 3, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He will go on to say he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Equivalent, meaning the same thing. The level on which verse 3 responds directly to verse 2 is Jesus calls Nicodemus into a greater depth of insight, which he cannot attain by natural perception. Can't see it. Can't figure it out by this natural ability we have. But only by being born from above can he truly see, that is, understand the kingdom of God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man, the one who is born from the beginning, does not receive, decomai, take hold of, that's what it means, the things Of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. They were foolishness to me for 32 years. Nor can he know them 
Because they are spiritually discerned. See, when Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, that's inadequate. That doesn't go far enough. That will not get the job done. Oh, I agree that Jesus was a prophet. He was a good man, a morally good man that won't get the job done. That'll keep you after you die. That will land you in hell. Nicodemus hasn't gone far enough yet. Because that's a worldly understanding of who Jesus is. Only supernatural insight can enable one to grasp who Jesus Christ really is. It takes grace. It takes a wooing from God himself. Jesus insists that Nicodemus be born from God. That is from to become a child of God, to become a child, truly a child of Abraham. You must be born again. Galatians 3, 7 tells us this. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Oh, it might be good to be born Jewish like it's good to be born any other nationality, ethnicity. It's okay. But being born Jewish is not going to get you in the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Jewish rabbi is saying to this Jewish master teacher in Israel. When Jesus tells Nicodemus he needs to be born from above, let me give you a few considerations what Nicodemus and that culture may have thought when Jesus said that. Hellenistic thought were, for instance, Plato spoke of a soul being born again, but he was referring to successive reincarnation. That's not going to get it. There's a religion called Orphism or Orphic Rebirth involved a process rather than an event and did not involve moral transformation you will become more enlightened even though your walk, your, your morality stayed the same. That's almost like people want to say of Christianity now. Oh yeah, I'm born again, but I can live the same way I lived before I became born again. Nah, that's not going to cut it. That's what the scripture says anyway. Even in Jewish culture was the idea that one who converted another counted as if he or she had created them. Rabbinic emphasis toward the Torah was associated with some sense of deliverance from Mount Sinai, the Israel birth with the law. They said that was rebirth. That's not going to get it. Whatever the Jews believed about this transformation of Gentiles in conversion, they believed they didn't need it. That's why Gentiles, in order to, to, to join Judaism, the religion of Judaism, not only had to be baptized, of course, the men had to be circumcised, and then it was as if they were born again. Some religious leaders looked at that when a Gentile became a, a Jewish proselyte, they could even marry then their own mother if they wanted to. 
they had changed so much. Jesus Christ says, no, that's not going to get the job done. Matthew 3, 9 says this. And do not think, John the Baptist says, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. They may have been natural fleshly descendants of Abraham and also born into a covenant with Abraham concerning the land of Israel, but it takes a second birth to enter the kingdom of God. And this was beyond Nicodemus' understanding. And this shocking reality becomes the focal point of harsh debate between Jesus and all of the religious leaders in Israel. That's what the argument is all about. No, we're okay with God. Jesus says, no, you're not. So he says in verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Is Nicodemus trying to be a little snarky here? Is he saying, come on, man, this is preposterous. It can't work this way. Or is he really concerned about the issue? I believe he's thinking. Because we know Nicodemus is no imbecile. He's the head teacher. And he's saying, I've never heard of this. I've never seen this before, what you're telling me. This is ludicrous. Jesus says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he could not enter the kingdom of God. This rebirth that Jesus is speaking of is not a physical birth, but a spiritual birth. Born of the spirit, that's clear enough. Galatians chapter 4, Bob Bowman is having a great Bible study online going through the book of Galatians. Check that out. It's very good. But Galatians 4, verse 23 and then 29 says this. But he who was of the bondwoman, speaking of Hagar and Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. They got ahead of God. We talked about that last week. And he of the free woman, speaking of Sarah and Isaac, through promise. Verse 29 says, But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Hmm, Yes, it is. But what does Jesus mean when he speaks of this born of water? Mind you, the entire phrase born of water and the spirit is equivalent to being born from above. This is from God and therefore uh, refers to the activity of the spirit working here. John chapter seven, verses 37 through 39 helps us out a little bit. This is what it says. On the last day, that great day of the feast, the feast of tabernacles, where they would go down to the pool and gather a jar of water in a silver vase and go up the hill singing Hallel prayers and pour that water out for six days. But on the seventh day, they would go down, 
pretending to get the water, go up singing, thousands of men are there. And the priests pretend they pour the water off. And this is when this itinerant rabbi stands up, Jesus Christ, and says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. That's where we're reading from here. On that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, hmm, nothing made up. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Hasn't died for our sin, hasn't resurrected because the grave couldn't hold him. Hadn't happened yet. Spirit hasn't come. So even if water refers to the spirit here, it must be here for a contrast or a comparison with either natural birth or baptism And in view of Jewish uses and the context here, I believe it speaks more closely to baptism. If Jesus is calling Nicodemus to be born of water and the spirit as a prerequisite for entering the kingdom, the context indicates that he's already been born of the flesh. He's already did that. And he needs no incentive to do so again. So Jesus is imploring him to be born of the spirit and not of the flesh. Some say water speaks of celestial waters around the throne. Well, that might be, but how are you going to get there? You're not getting there. So that's not going to help out. Others say Jesus is warning Nicodemus to submit to John's baptism as needful for the coming of the Spirit. But that can't be also, because even John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's baptism, once again, we spoke of this, is incomplete, does us no good without Jesus' gift of the Spirit. I said before, Confederate money today is no good. If all we do is get baptized into repentance by John the Baptist, that's not doing us any good. Let me say this also, even the Great Commission Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Now, if we do it in the order of how it's read, it's okay. But people, you know, we like to pull things out to fit our own agenda. But he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism does not save anyone. So it's difficult to see that Christian baptism would be offering to Nicodemus an earthly analogy he could grasp. 
Now, I've said all of this to say this right here. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, being a Jew or being a part of Judaism is not going to get you into the kingdom of God. What Gentiles do to become proselytes, which is being baptized, doesn't get them into the kingdom of God either. What Nicodemus needed and every human being needs in order to see the kingdom of God. That's what we need to understand. That's what's going out. You must be born again. And that's baptism of the Holy Spirit. A great example is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul says, for by one spirit, God's spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Once again, he's not speaking of water baptism here. Water baptism is an outward sign of her inward reality. That's what water baptism is. It's, it's a mystery. When I'm born again, when I ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come in my life, and you guys, when you did the same thing, we're automatically baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. If I never hit a splash of water and be baptized, I'm okay, I'm going home. Should I be water baptized? Yes, because Jesus says, hey, we need to. It's a picture of what he did, the work he did. That thief on the cross, he, he didn't get baptized. But Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He was saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he was baptized into him right then and there. That's what he's speaking of here, Nicodemus. He says in verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, human frailty, dead as a nail and inadequate for true worship with God. Only that is possible by the spirit. Jesus says, those that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Nicodemus, like Paul, boasted in his flesh, in his religious standing before God. He had to turn and learn to trust in God and not in the flesh, which is vain. And he must worship God in the spirit. He says, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Nicodemus must have been looking strange because Jesus says, do not marvel the mod soul. Do not be astonished by this that I said to you, you must be born again. Then he gives an analogy. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit, Nicodemus. What he's saying is, just as one not born from above could not even see, couldn't even perceive or understand the kingdom of God, one could not grasp the origin of the spirit born any more than one could grasp the origin of the destination of the believer when he said, I'm born again. I told you before, when, when, I, when I told my mom and dad, I go into the house and say, hey, I'm, I'm born again. I'm saved. I, I, remember what I told you? They said, hey, we've heard it before. 
We know. <laughs> I understood why. And I remember I said, that's okay. I understand. And I walked and I walked and I walked. It was about a year and a half with walking. And mama drove over to the house and said, boy, you've changed. And I said, yep, it's the Lord. They knew how the concept of how it happened because they prayed for me. But they didn't know and understand it happened until they seen the fruit. That's what it's about. My mom mom still says it. She's still living. Boy, you can make your mouth say anything. (laughs) Yes, you can. But the proof is in the walking. That's what Nicodemus is finding out. This is what Jesus is telling him here. And so Jesus draws another analogy, Jesus being the master teacher, Nicodemus thinking he was. He says, this analogy I'm about to give you, Nick, should spark you to remembrance of some things. But Nicodemus won't get it right now. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28 says this. He says, for I will take you from among the nations gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you, here it is, a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Only one from above could see God's kingdom and only he who came from above could testify firsthand about heavenly realities. That's what he's about to tell him. He says in verse nine, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? I can picture Nicodemus throwing his hands up, being the teacher of Israel saying, how can these things be? I can't put them together. I I can't figure it out. All of these things, I give up. That's, what he was wanting the Messiah to see. But if we look closely on the surface, his problem appears to be a lack of understanding. But Jesus, the discerner and the thoughts of our hearts looks right through it and said, no, 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 no. That's not the issue. I want you to note the progression the telltale signs of Nicodemus here. He says in verse 10, you do not know these things? He says, do you not know these things? I put the you there because he's speaking to Nicodemus. He says in verse 11, you do not receive our witness. There's the problem. And then he says in verse 12, how will you believe? Oh yeah, you look like you're, you're, you have a problem, Nicodemus. But it's not an understanding problem. 
So we're going to diagnose this. Verse 10 says this, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? I think his words here are words of astonishment and of reproof Jesus gives him. He says, and do not know these things? One who claimed to teach others proved shameful. Then he says in verse 11, remember in chapter one, Nicodemus says, well, in verse two, Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Jesus gives it back to him right here. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Most people say he's speaking of the we there is John the Baptist. The we there is his disciples, but he goes much higher than that. The we there is his divine witnesses, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus is struggling here, but it's not struggling. He's not struggling from a lack of understanding. The Old Testament, and then it hits the New Testament. They always speak of by the, the mouth of two or three witnesses. Let everything be established. That's what Jesus gives them here. Not only am I telling you this, but the Father and the Spirit is telling you this. So you should agree with this, Nicodemus. But Nicodemus, once, once again, it's not about understanding. It's about believing. It's about trusting. That's his problem. That's why Jesus will wind up saying here in verse 12, he says this, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In the Greek book of wisdom, I think it was uh, Rabbi Gamaliel, he writes this. It's not God-breathed, but what he wrote is very good. I want to read it to you. He says, for the corruptible body weighs down the soul. Yes, it does. And the earthly tabernacle, same thing, weighs down the mind, which has many considerations. And we barely figure out the things on the earth and find the things at hand only with toil, yep. But who had discovered the things in heaven? It's impossible by natural abilities to discover the things of heaven. In God's, in John's gospel, things above are simply the things of God, which Jesus shares in his grace with his disciples. Colossians chapter three, verses one through two The women are going through that book, a great book. Come out, listen, uh, says this. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. For Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind, Victor, on things above, not on things of the earth. Jesus acknowledges, you guys, that spiritual realities are more difficult to grasp, to comprehend, to believe than the truths that can be perceived with our five senses. That's why being a Christian, being a believer in Jesus Christ, we have to walk by what? Thank you. Yes, we do. And we grow. 
by faith. We trust in him. Nevertheless, the heart of the matter, once again, is credibility. The heart of the matter for Nicodemus is belief. Who are you going to trust? That's what he's got to wrestle with. And that's Nicodemus' problem. And everyone's problem who will not surrender their life to Jesus Christ. The beaten path is unbelief. That's a worn out path of unbelief. That path of straight and narrow, it still flourishes. Not many goes down it. Jesus begins to explain his unique qualifications to speak of heavenly things. Jesus is the one and only who had bridged heaven and earth. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, brag on yourself, Jesus, but he who came down from heaven. Get that straight. No one has. Everyone in a point of time was jumping on the bandwagon of this so-called guru. His name was Eckhart Tolle. I think Oprah Winfrey had him on her show a few years back. And, and, and what the, 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 the rubbish he was speaking of is that every human being has a divine spark inside of them. I have not found mine yet until the Holy Spirit came. But that was the rubbish he was giving out. And people were running to him like it was nothing. John here speaks of a descent from Jesus Christ, not merely who has a little divine spark, but fully God and fully man. And in his, in, in his humility, he comes to earth. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. That's a spiritual thing right there. No one has descended from heaven than the one who came down from heaven, who is in heaven. Speaking to Nicodemus right now, what is he speaking of here? Remember in the prologue, verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, once again, speaking of a place of intimacy. And I said to you that preposition in suggests that Jesus revealed the Father while on this earth and he was also in heaven. Remember, we talked about, and the only time they were separated is when he was crucified on that cross. The Father turned away from him. That's what he's speaking of now, has declared him. And then he says, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title of himself. It speaks of his humanity and his deity and his reign that he will have one day over all the earth. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus will straighten all of this stuff out. I love this verse. Daniel says, by the Holy Spirit, I was watching in the night vision. And behold, consider this. One like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ, he came to the ancient of days, the father, 
and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, it's coming, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, hallelujah, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That's amazing. This next passage clarifies, once again, the prerequisite for birth from above, not mere faith in Christ in an abstract sense. Yeah, there's many Christ. Antichrist will be coming. And before Jesus Christ, after he came on the scene, there were many Christ. So you, when you, you, you tell me that uh, I love God and you, you talk to me a lot about God, that's not enough for me. I have to ask you, who, who is your God? Because my God is Jesus Christ. And if we can relate to everything the gospel says and the scripture says about him, then we're like-minded. And he's more than a prophet. He's more than a morally good man. He's more than a... Uh, He's my crutch. He's my life. He's my savior. He's the one who hung on a cross and gave up the ghost and in three days was resurrected. That's the God man I know. That's the God man I gave my life to. He says in verse 14, and as Moses, Jesus speaking, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What Jesus is doing, he's contrasting between Moses and himself. Because you know they love Moses. Are you saying that you're greater than Moses? This and that about Moses. Yes, yes, that's what he's saying. We need to settle this up front, Jesus says to Nicodemus. Not only is Jesus, not only is Jesus greater than Moses because Jesus parallels with the Torah which Moses he merely mediated that he is greater than Moses because he parallels with the instrument of crucifixion even though we're going to see this brass pole and this brass snake Moses only lifts it up Jesus Christ represents it so yes he's greater than Moses This account in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel, once again, the new generation, they are grumbling, they are mumbling, they are complaining. I know we don't do that. After all of the mighty works, this cloud by day and this fire by night has led them through. First Corinthians says, and this rock that was going along with them is Christ also. Verse 4 says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our souls loathe this worthless bread. Wow. Wow. We loathe it. Do we loathe it? Do we digest it? 
Chuck Swindoll, I've said it before. He said, we should read the scripture so much that our words become bibbling. When we speak, we should be speaking the words of God. Let's not loathe it. The Lord had had enough. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten When he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. Bronze in the scripture, the metal speaks for a judgment. And put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. We've all been bitten by the serpent of sin. The question is, what are we going to do about it? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We will die physically one day. And if we die without being born again, we will die eternally also. We all, we've, we've all heard the old saying, born once, die twice. Born, born twice, die once. Now, the picture of this bronze serpent on a pole, of course, it's a shadow. It's a type foreshadowing Christ, taking our punishment for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for he made him, he, the father, made him, the son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Most people look, and these are nuances, but nuances are very important at times. Most people, when they see that, we, we read where that snake has been put on this pole and lifted up. They, they say, Jesus is the snake. Look at him. John may have said, that's probably okay. Yeah. But what we should be looking at is the lifting up. That's what we should be seeing. The lifting up, the crucifixion. John eight twenty eight says this. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, Then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me, I speak these things. He says in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all. We used to sing that song in church. We would always say, draw all men unto me. It says here, draw all peoples to myself. That's what he's speaking of here. When he's lifted up on that cross. You will get it then. And it speaks of, it's in the Aorist tense. It speaks of a one-time act. And it covers everything else. Not only did it cover uh, uh, when he did it, eternity, but it also covered those that believed in him and what he did before he did the act. That's how powerful the act was. Then Jesus answers Nicodemus' question here. His question of how can a man be born when he is old? The answer is by believing in Jesus Christ. 
one is born again and he receives eternal life. He says in verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Once again, that's a perish of being, not well-being, but have eternal life. Faith in Jesus Christ yields eternal life. Life initiated by the spirit of God from above. I'm not going to let us off the hook. What is belief? I love the definition in the Greek because it helps keep me where I need to be. We can say it in many ways, but I like the way it rolls here. A conviction full of joyful trust. That's what I had. That Jesus is the Messiah, the divinely appointed author of eternal salvation in the kingdom of God, conjoined with obedience to Christ. Not that I'm perfect, but I'm striving. I'm on my way. I'm obeying you, Lord. Daniel 12, 2 says this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, Ionios life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, it ends right here. But I'm glad the Holy Spirit doesn't stop speaking. Verses 16 and 17 are probably the most quoted, well-known verses in the Bible for believers and non-believers. Football games, they hold the signs up. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John loves that word gave. He says it over 60 times in the book of Gospel of John. That unique son, that one of a kind son. Only begotten, when he says that, it adds pathos. It adds heart. It adds emotion to what John is saying here. It should flip us all the way back to Abraham and Isaac. Take thou son, thy only son, and go to the mountain that I'm going to appoint you. And when you get there, I'll tell you what needs to be done. Every day. He went in obedience to the Father. What he's saying when he, when he says, take thy son, thy only son, if we believe in him, for God so loved the world he gave, it's not, it's, it's not the degree of the giving he gives here. It's qualitative rather than the quantity. His unique, his only son. He gave something. He gave his all when he gave us Jesus Christ. This is how God loved the world. You put it like this. How do I know he loved the world? He gave his only begotten son. It remind me, reminds me of Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, people, you talk with people and people, they, they might come off with something like this. You know, I love you, brother. And then they dump on you all the bad news. God says, you know, I love you, brother. 
and I'm about to show you. So anytime someone throws you a curveball, anytime the bottom falls out in your life, anytime it rains on you for a month at a time, everything is going sideways. God demonstrates his love towards us. And that's all that matters. He loves me enough by action. That's what he says here. And I'm not going to let us off the hook on this because Jesus modeled sacrificial love. And if we are believers, we should model the same sacrificial love. That shows we are believers in Christ. He says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Listen up. The fire is already ablaze. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And it's getting more intense each and every day. I never thought I'd see what I now view on the news. Men transitioning to women and women transitioning into men. Smash and grabs is common like jaywalking in the street. Good is being, being called evil and evil is being called good. Blatant, open rebellion against almighty God. It's already ablaze. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ Jesus, I like to put it, he's the fire chief who's in this fire. And we as believers is his helpers, telling a lost and sinful world who can't see and don't want to see the truth of the matter, that the building called earth is on fire and it's going to be destroyed. I don't have to worry about global warming or climate change. It's going to be okay. The one we need to be worried about is when this thing melts in fervent heat. Second Peter 3 verses 10 through 12 says this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up. Therefore, understanding that, believing that, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, Victor, looking for and hastening to the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. You can take that to the bank. Those things are going to happen. He says in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. Because only those who respond to God's gift in the cross of Jesus Christ will be saved. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because we are sinners by nature. David says, I love the King James, I was shapen in iniquity. The NIV puts it this way. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother, he said, conceived me. That's crazy. 
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation. This is the verdict. That light is come into the world. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men love darkness. The worship team can come up. Men is devoted to darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. In this context, the world's love for darkness contrasts God's love for the world. Isn't that amazing? He came to his own and his own received him not. He says in verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Where do you stand this morning? That's the question. Are you walking in the light or are you still in darkness? It matters where you are. God loves us. For God so loved the world, he gave. God demonstrated his love towards us. While yet we were sinners, he died for the ungodly. That's the love he's demonstrated. If we've made that transition, if we've been conveyed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, are we sharing Christ to a world, to a building that's already in flames? Do we care that others will be incinerated by these flames? Share the truth of the gospel. Stand on the gospel. Live a life committed to Jesus Christ. This thing is passing away. It goes quickly. Only the things we do for Christ will last. Continue to walk. Continue to persevere. Continue to love the unlovable. Pray for those, the Bible says, who persecute you. That's what we're called to do. And we can do it. He hasn't asked us to do something we can't do. We can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us because his Holy Spirit indwells us. Let's live for Jesus. Father God, we love you. Father God, come and strengthen us. We're feeble. We're weak. We tug, we kick against your pricks sometimes, your pricks of humble yourself, walk in humility, forgive like I've forgiven you, and keep following me. I've got you. Lord, bless your people here. Bless those watching online. Give us a greater love for you that we may share you with our walking and with our speaking. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with.